1: Episode 153.2 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I don't know when the last time we had a point two episode is. Our listeners who have, well, I guess if you listened to last week, you'll know that the point episodes mean somebody is missing, and today that person is Nathan Gilmore, who's off. Uh, attending to some sort of personal matter. Um, my name is Michael Farmer. I'm an prof- assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm your host for today. Uh, joining me is Danny Anderson. A, are you, you're an assistant professor? I am that. Of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Danny?
0: It's going all right. How are you, Michael?
1: Uh, I'm okay. Yeah. Um, well, our topic for today is... Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, 1944 play, No Exit, or the, the French title is actually Oui Clos, which if I were translating it, which I'm not, it would be, I would probably translate it behind closed doors or something like that, closed circuit camera maybe. Uh, the, the No Exit makes sense, but it doesn't have much to do with the French title. Uh, one one note before we start talking about it, uh, Danny and I are going to uh, pronounce the name of the author differently how are you pronouncing it?
0: I've always heard just sart. Yeah. And so that if I uh, – I could try and change it, but my default would always go back to sart.
1: Right, and my default is always Sartre. And really the truth is from my understanding it is somewhere in between with that second syllable being kind of a vocalization more than a sound. Uh, I wish I had a
0: grunt in my name. That would be cool. Right.
1: Um, When Robert Harrison from Entitled Opinions talked about uh, this author, he he basically just coughed instead of saying the whole name. (laughs) So we could do that, but I think it would probably hurt people's ears, and I don't think they need an additional reason to make fun of us. So um, I'll keep saying Sartre, and you keep saying Sartre, and we'll both be wrong.
0: (laughs) We'll be wrong together,
1: though. Well, uh, we conceived this episode, but believe it or not, this is our first episode tangentially related to existentialism ever, uh, despite the fact that that is my area of specialty. We, 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 have never, uh, we have never had an existentialist episode until now, the best I can remember. Um, and, and I thought that maybe this would be a good topic because last semester you were talking on Facebook about teaching no exit. Um, so I, I wondered if you could just uh, take a moment and talk about your experiences teaching it, what kind of route into it you take at your Christian college.
0: Well, I used it, I use it actually in the, we have a, a sequence of introductor, introduction to literature classes that are time period based. And so I typically teach the contemporary lit uh, time period. And so the way I like to teach in general is uh, by establishing a conversation at the beginning of the semester that the various authors participate in in their own ways. And so I begin uh, the semester with Kafka, which is another form of existentialism uh, in, in the modernist sense of it, and uh, and talking about the kind of alienation of, of, of people. And then that opens up the conversation about modernism. And then we go into, uh, I have a unit on College uh, narratives, campus narratives, and then uh, we go through postmodernism, uh, and I try to uh, recover some of the uh, cynical uh, kind of detachment, ironic detachment of postmodernism at the end of the semester with a unit on david foster wallace who's very much a postmodernist writer and yet seeks some sort of like the attempt at some sort of meaning uh as, as an ethical act so he's a very sort of ethical writer and well, so he,
1: he is the patron saint of metamodernism as you might recall and
0: i have to credit that that episode actually for getting me thinking along these terms um, uh and so yeah um and so uh, but I don't want to end the, the semester on a kind of happy note. And so I follow that. <laughs> I follow David Foster Wallace's hopeful postmodernism with this play uh, by, by Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, no exit. And so for me, it, it does kind of uh, put the reader back into the position of having to consider one's place within a, a community. Uh, and, and so uh, in in a kind of a more bleak way than, Uh, David Foster Wallace does, but to me, it's, it's, it's a more thought provoking way to end a semester. And, And so, uh, when we teach this class or when I teach this in my class, then the way we've typically done it is, uh, uses a chance to compare and contrast the various, um, ethical positions that, that authors and texts have made throughout the semester. And so this is a, a you know, a, like I said, a bleaker version of that, but in, 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 so I think it's actually ethically very productive, uh, for, for the way to, as a way to wrap up this class. So that's sort of the way that I present it to my students at a Christian college.
1: How did they uh, respond to it when you did it last semester? Oh, well. And before, before you go on, what, what, uh, what, grade le- what class level is this
0: uh, this is a 200 level class okay. this is sort of uh, after your this is a sophomore level class and you um, said they
1: responded pretty well
0: pretty well in general they i mean do you have people i mean by that point they'd been inoculated against we- reading weird things right and so they were sort of used to that uh because uh you know i mean i begin with kafka so i mean it doesn't get right? do any, any weirder than that so uh the the kind of off-puttingness of the of the text they're sort of used to by then, um, and we've done another. I do another play in the middle of the semester. I do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh my actually, gosh, <laughs> that's Talk what about I'm doing Blake. right now. Yeah, exactly. And 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 so, but I tell them for about that play particularly. I feel like if you think about it in the right way, this is probably the most Christian text we'll read all semester in that it's like the, the inverse of heaven. I mean, it's the exact opposite of a Christian community. And so what you get is a way to see what a Christian community should be. And so, uh, uh, this is nothing compared to who's afraid of Virginia Wolf in terms of bleakness. Um, and right. So it, yeah.
1: Because I mean, I think if you if you asked Sartre, he would probably tell you he didn't mean for the play to be bleak, or at least like he doesn't conceive. He certainly does not conceive of existentialism as a bleak philosophy.
0: Exactly. And, and that's that's one of the um, ways that I think my students are sort of prepared for it uh, in the sequence that I put this into. Uh, and so they they typically like it. And and they I think one thing they like about it is that it's very symmetrical. And so it, it lends itself to close reading in in a way that they've been practiced in by the end of a semester in in an introduction to literature class. And so they try to sort of match up the, the triad of characters in this with their, the situations that led them to hell in their life. And so who matches up with who as as a form of like punishment in the afterlife. And, and, and so it becomes a a nice little puzzle game for them on some level Uh, and and a great exercise in close reading for one thing, but it's also uh, it's, it's a, they're used to talking about like Christian ethics and ethics in general, uh, by the time we get to this. And so this is a great occasion to do that. And so I, so far in, in the one time that I've taught this class so or this tech so far, uh, it's, it's been actually really productive and the students have reacted really well to it.
1: So you're doing it again this semester?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I decided it worked well enough that I was going to keep the same general, uh, course sequence. I, I eliminated a couple of things, but yeah.
1: And then you don't have to prep a whole nother course, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's the first an time an,
0: in my life that's ever happened. Actually, so.
1: an added advantage. Um, I, the only time I've ever taught it, I taught a special topics in existentialism three years ago. I think maybe two years ago, uh, two and a half because yeah, it was it, it would have been two years ago last semester. And uh, so, so, I mean, th- that that's kind of the natural place you would see it. So the students were ready for ready for all the philosophy stuff. I think they they actually found it a little elementary. It, it's so it, it's so concerned with laying out Sartre's eth- ethical position that if you know that ethical position well and we read it relatively late in the semester, there's not too much to say about it, I think or at least that's the way they saw it. Hmm. But one one interesting thing is a lot of the students were also taking World Lit at the time and we were reading parts of uh, Dante. And, and, oh, well. and so there, there's so many weird parallels between The Inferno and No Exit. I mean, beginning, I guess, with <laughs> the, the fact that they're both set in some sort of hellish afterlife
0: oh that's very interesting um and and actually that's another thing that worked out well the the david foster wallace uh, story that one of the stories that we read from him in that unit is called good people it's a it was a new yorker story uh and it's a really excellent story but one of the the, the, the main character in that story has this kind of extended contemplation about what hell is uh, towards the end of that, and then we kind of lead into this this vision of what hell is. So uh, I, I find having those kinds of connections between texts to be uh, pretty vital for helping students in a literature class. Now you're talking about a, a philosophy class. No, it was, I, a,
1: it was a lit class. It was special topics in, in literature, existentialism in literature. It was called.
0: Okay, but did it like so? Does that class like require from them? like a philosophical background?
1: Well, no, I can't I can't require that. We only have one philosophy class at at Crown and I teach it. And and there's only one day on existentialism. So, no, it it didn't. We started um we, we kind of defined it as we went along. I mean, the the way to start a class like that when when you can't assume the students have any philosophical background is with Sartre's uh, existentialism as a humanism, which is about a 15-page Introduction to existentialism uh, that that attempts to define the, the the movement and then let the students kind of kick against it as we read all these other uh, thinkers who are broadly termed existentialist because because I mean he he sets out a definition in that essay that then. Um, not, well, not everybody who gets called that is going to agree with, and so it becomes a productive way of of broadening the movement and narrowing the movement and asking whether it's a helpful label at all and things like that. So, no, I mean, some of them knew me well enough to have some sense of what, what it meant, uh, but none of them none of them had studied it in depth before that class. So the class was about half philosophy and half. Literature in terms of the actual makeup, but it was a it was a literature class, so people took it as a lit elective or what what have
0: you. Okay, well, it's interesting to me cause as a uh, <clears throat> for the a strictly literature class. Uh, I thought it was a really. They had a lot to say about it because of uh, the the role that formal analysis plays, and, and this play I think lends itself really well to kind of looking for motifs and that sort of thing throughout and, and making broad connections within the text and, and just performing literary analysis and so it 's interesting that uh, it works better for me as a in a lit class than it did for you in a philosophy class when it's explicitly a, f- a philosophical <laughs> sort of play.
1: Well, I, I think I think you could probably read No Exit, especially if you read it in tandem with Sartre's first novel, Nausea. We were talking about this mm-hmm. before we started recording. Um, I, I think if you read those two together, you could come up spontaneously with a great deal of what he says in like being in nothingness or existentialism as a humanism, these kind of major... Um, philosophical text because he's clearly writing these these literary works in order to explicate his philosophy right Hmm. so he he doesn't see them as as two separate things i I really propaganda is too strong a word because they they obviously have real literary merit but they, they are in some sense concrete embodiments of what he's trying to say in the abstract in in his philosophical essays
0: and that's interest. That raises an interesting problem, I guess, uh, a, a literary problem of, of taste or, or whatever, of criticism, at least, because uh, I know uh, Nabokov, he really dismissed this play. Uh, he, he, he would. Or, 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 nausea. I mean, he was talking about nausea, actually, uh, as very much a, just kind of an exercise in uh, in his philosophy. And he didn't have the sort of literary artistic chops, I suppose, to pull it off. So,
1: um, well, you, you've read nausea. Would you agree with that?
0: Um, well, I mean, I read it as an undergraduate. I wouldn't necessarily trust my my judgment at the time, uh, because I found it I found it interesting uh, at the time. I remember, like, really, I mean, the story of Rokatan's uh, existential dilemma was uh, uh, moving to me at the time. As a as a when I was naive and young, right? And so, uh, like, I, I don't know if I would feel the same way about it now. I, I will I, – it's on my shelf still. I, I should revisit it. I should have revisited it in uh, preparation for this, but I didn't have time. <laughs> um, and so uh, uh, I don't know that I would trust my memory of, as an undergraduate to to judge that. But um, I, it does raise an interesting question because I know Trilling uh, had the same kind of problem. If you read his short stories particularly in his novel, um, Middle of the Journey, like, you can see, like – uh, almost like thought experiments, springing. You can almost tie each story to a particular essay. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. And, 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 uh, and and so that's really what made him not a great artist. I mean, he's a, uh, to me a great critic, right, and, and a great sort of thinker, but not necessarily a great artist. And so, I mean, can we say the same thing about Sartre? Then, if if
1: uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I would I would say I mean, you use the term interesting for nausea. I, I would say it is much more interesting than it is good. I, I think it's it, it is. I no, I should say I've never read it in French. I've read No Exit in French, but I've never I've never read Nausea in French. So maybe maybe we're talking about a translation issue, but that that book is terribly uh dense and opaque and, and has only the vaguest semblance of a plot. And and unfortunately it it, it influenced a lot of other existentialist writers to write unreadable books i'm thinking for example about uh bella's first novel dangling man oh yes which uh, is is very nausea-esque right In in terms yes. of the way it's written um and and suffers it is uh, like like nausea it is more interesting than good i'm also thinking about most of walker percy's books and I, I love percy but uh part of me wishes percy would have just stayed away from fiction and wrote philosophy which is clearly what he wanted to do mm. um and so, a, mo- a novel like *The Goer may have more plot than *Nausea* and *Dangling Man*, but it, it suffers from the same problem. It is more interesting than it is readable. Um, so, so yeah, I would definitely agree with that about about *Nausea*. Not about *No Exit*, though. I think *No Exit* is compulsively readable. I think it's very well written. It's up there with like Camus' *L'Étranger* in terms of in terms of existentialist works that are not only interesting philosophically but fun to read and moving in their way.
0: I would agree with that and 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 I've seen a performance of this live uh there was a uh a a free theater series in Cleveland when I lived there and they did an outdoor version of this. And it was, it was quite compelling actually. An Um,
1: outdoor version of no exit, huh? Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And so there were very virtually, there was virtually no set. I mean, I mean, obviously there's no set built into the play itself, but uh, yeah. And so uh, that was actually my, the first time I I hadn't read it before I saw that play. And then I've gone back and read it a few times And, and it is as a, as a work of art, more than interesting, it's well-crafted. Uh, and, and like I said, there are, there's uh, a lot of artistic skill going into this. And so, no, I totally agree um, with that distinction between this and nausea, for sure. think
1: There's six years between the two, and, I, and, and one thing that happened in the meantime was that Camus published L'Etranger, which is the hemming of pr- French prose in terms of yeah. straightforwardness. I mean, French is such a more complicated uh, language on a sentence level than English is, at least the low level French is more complicated than low level English I mean I know English can get quite complicated um, so so camus but i i wonder I wonder to what extent Sartre read Lat and, and got got that brevity down in order to to get to no exit.
0: Mm. yeah uh that, that's a excellent question and uh, going back to what you said about Bello because his first two books, uh, the victim being the second one um are both vastly different than what would follow that with Augie March, right? And, and it's like he has to get the the idea novel out of the way, sort of, <laughs> and, and then he becomes the great artist with with Augie March and, and this sort of exploration of voice and and, and the possibilities of literary art uh, as, as as something more than just. Smart ideas, right? And it becomes he finds an emotion, and I think that's what this play has is a kind of emotion to it that, that is uh, that is compelling for me.
1: Yeah, and I I have to confess I never liked Augie March. I'm not sure I actually made it all the way through it.
0: Oh, really? <laughs>
1: yeah. So maybe maybe I'm a, a tedious
0: <laughs>
1: uh, ideas novel guy. Although you know I love Henderson the Rain King, so.
0: Have you ever read Humboldt's Gift? I haven't. Yeah, it's another sort of – it's just the explosive uh, like voice of it that just is sort of rapturous I think is um, uh, uh, what makes Bellow, Bellow at least. if Even if you don't enjoy it, that's what makes – that's what we identify as Bellow. That, that kind uh, of
1: rollicking quality.
0: Yeah, for sure. The the you know the, you have the picturesque and all that in there. So um, yeah, that, so that's interesting that you made that connection. I would I had not thought of that, but I, I love it. So
1: I I have to say I don't think that's that's original with me. I think I don't I don't remember for sure, but I think it's Dennis O'Donohue who 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 uh, argues that Nausea and uh, Notes from Underground, which which seems much more obvious, are both the the kind of precursors to Dangling Man.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That makes a lot of sense.
1: I had to read all this from my PhD comps. So, mm. well, uh, let's let's talk about Sartre's vision of the afterlife here in, in No Exit. What um what's what's distinctive about it?
0: Well, uh, hell is above uh, the world instead of below, and that's that's a, a sticking point for me. I, I don't understand <laughs> exactly the the the. Purpose. Uh, I, I get the function of it, but I don't understand the purpose of uh, of inverting the traditional sort of metaphysic of hell, uh, as well as taking it away from this kind of place of uh, like medieval torture devices and, and flames and that sort of thing. You have three people trapped in a sparsely decorated room together, where there's nothing to do. Um, they can't. There's no mirrors. Uh, and that's an important uh, point. That. Like permeates this whole play yeah. uh, the, uh there 's no the, the glass they call it there 's no mirrors, and uh all they have are other people against which to view themselves and, and therefore the the great the great proclamation of the, at the end of the play uh, that is you know even if you haven 't read this play you 've probably heard this line, hell is other people right and so uh, um that 's the vision that 's the metaphysic of hell here uh and and it's it's quite. Uh, that's another aspect that makes teaching it at a Christian college really productive, because uh, I mean it goes so much against the idea of hell that uh, is handed down through church traditions and, and, and biblical texts and and, and what forth uh, and what not. So um, uh, I'm sure you have more ideas about this, though.
1: Well, I would say it does and It doesn't go against it. I mean, I like I said. Uh, the only the only time i've ever taught no exit i read it we read it with a bunch of students who had also read the inferno that semester it it got me to thinking how traditional his vision of hell really is in the sense so dante's inferno is built on the system called contrapasso uh, which I, i think literally in italian means counter penalty it's 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 the the idea that millions and millions of movies and TV shows have picked up on since Dante, the the kind of ironic or appropriate punishment for particular sins, right? So for some reason, I can't think of anything actually in the Inferno because it's 6.30 in the morning here. Uh, and all I can <laughs> think of is the Simpsons episode where Homer goes to hell and they they try to uh, torture him by feeding him donuts because he's a glutton. That would be contrapasso. <laughs> doesn't good. work on him, but um, – <laughs> so, so, like in in Dante, the wrathful, for example, get buried up to their necks in ice, and they bite each other on the head for all eternity. So it's it's this ironic punishment that is an appropriate punishment, and in in, in Dante's um, in Dante's ethic. The idea is that, in committing the sin over and over and over again, you have kind of turned your soul into the sin itself and you 've lost all humanity and just become your actions, uh, which is uh, uh, you know our listeners were familiar with virtue ethics. If Nathan were here, he would point out this is what Alistair McIntyre. Uh, believes about how ethics work, I, and I, I would say Sartre is in his way a virtue ethicist, and and what you what you have here is a, a group of people, three people who have become their their worst qualities. I, I, I don't know I don't know how quickly Sartre would be uh, how quick he would be to call it sin but uh but but they've they've become their least attractive qualities, and they're kind of stuck in them and so they're always very they're all very surprised when they come into the room, the first thing they ask is where are the torturers right yeah uh where where the I th- where are the pokers I think is probably the the what what the French says something like that and yeah. and and you know they 're always they 're always surprised and say well maybe this won 't be so bad and then then that that famous line at the end hell is other people and i 'm sure we 're going to go into that more here in a few minutes, but th- that that suggests that while they they don 't need pokers because um they they have become their own hell you know and and by being thrust together, they all kind of torture one another. And and so I I think in its way it's actually it's it's not orthodox, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's that radically different from what Dante is up to, other than that there's no God in this universe, of course, because it's it's Sartre. He's he's an atheist. But um I, I would say it's closer to the traditional vision of hell than than you might immediately assume when you see there are no flames and no devil.
0: Yeah, and there are like I mean Apparently, moral consequences for a person's choices and behaviors, right? And so, in that way, it's 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 quite uh, like almost puritanical <laughs> in its uh, in its idea of, of punishment. And, and so, like, uh, and the things that get defined as as what uh, the things that they settle on is what uh, brought them to this. Uh, to this afterlife, to this form of punishment, um, really are. I mean, you have sort of cowardice and then you have, uh, uh, you know, lust and all these sorts of things. Betrayal, Um,
1: lots of betrayal.
0: Lots of betrayal, yes. And so um, uh, my understanding, and this is where I'm going to defer to you about uh, the overall, like existentialist philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre, Um, my understanding uh, of his philosophy is that with that, with a lack of meaning in life, uh, everyone is able to make their own meaning, and yet that becomes its own kind of moral responsibility. Uh, it, it, and so, it's actually sort of a a punishment in and of itself—the uh, act of having the ability to make meaning. Uh, and if, uh, if that—if I'm right about my that sort of uh, uh, stripped down understanding of, of of his philosophy, that's very apparent in this in this play.
1: Right, and and I, I said earlier that he did not consider existentialism to be bleak. I think the better word for it is stark. Um, it, it is it is built on the absolute freedom of the individual. So you are you are able morally to do anything you want to do. Not in the sense that, like, I could step out of my back porch right now and fly away. I mean, I, I have obvious physical limitations. It's not like I, I, I can do anything I want in the sense that I can go be president or I can join the NBA. I mean, you have actual limitations, right? But morally, there's nothing keeping you from doing anything. When I teach existentialism as a humanism in my philosophy class, I always say, well, there's Nothing, there's nothing morally that's keeping me from coming in here and killing you all. Yeah. I, am, I am capable of doing that, and I, I, I do myself a disservice if I pretend that I'm not. You're, you're capable of any good or any evil that you wish, you know? You know? Yeah. Um, do you have to and, give a
0: trigger warning for that before yeah, you yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I should switch examples. <laughs> um, but uh, the idea is you're, you're, you're able to do anything. But anything you do, you're going to be absolutely responsible for, because for Sartre, there's no God. And so if there's no lawgiver, it means you're the lawgiver. And, and what you end up with is some combination of medieval virtue ethics and uh, the Kantian categorical imperative, in the sense that, number one, any action you perform, you are creating a self for yourself, right? So uh, the the famous line from uh, existentialism as a humanism is existence precedes essence, by which he means you're not anything until you live and make yourself something. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a kind of bargain basement version of what that sentence means but it'll work for our purposes you're not anything until you make yourself something so with every action you are creating the self that you will inhabit and the idea is as you go further along in your life and keep keep making yourself you're you're hardening you're you're never completely hardened until you're dead but it's going to be harder and harder for you to change who you are as you go on and continue to do the same things over and over again right Uh, yeah go ahead
0: Well, I was just going to say that to me is is a perfect I mean, we talk about it. We think about existentialism as sort of antithetical to Christian thought. But that seems to me a moral philosophy that could be quite useful, uh, particularly for college age people. And so. Oh,
1: absolutely. um, And and then the other side of it, um, the, the side that's closer to Kant than to Dante is is that Every action you make you are you are announcing to the world that this is the proper way to live because you wouldn 't do it if you didn 't think it was the proper way to live and and there 's no such thing as proper just for yourself you 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 have to conceive of every action you take as be as creating a path not just for yourself but for everybody so you, you can see how that that fits in with the categorical imperative, which again, let me see if I can come up with this this early in the morning um, <laughs> Act only on that maxim which you would will to be a universal law. Isn't that the categorical imperative? Any, anyway, you, do you know who, who most gets into this in my philosophy class is mothers?
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, because, okay.
1: because I think – I don't have children, so I don't know. But I think being a parent, your kids are always watching, right? And so anything you do, you are kind of announcing to them, this is the way adult human beings live. Mm. So so the, the students I've had who, who get most excited about existentialism as a humanism are the students who uh, who have children. And it tends to be mothers for whatever reason. I said mothers. I suspect fathers, too, would, would feel this way.
0: Um, yes. I mean, as a father, I mean, I have to say that, you know, I'm always sort of uh, – you always feel like big brother is watching. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, little brother. Little brother, little sister in my case. But, yes. Um, yeah. And so the idea that – you bear responsibility for other people and how they see you um because how they see you affects how they imagine themselves i mean that is a uh, a a burden on some level actually so so,
1: so you, you can see how how stark this philosophy. it's not bleak because i mean one th- one argument he makes in existentialism is a humanism is the alternative to this is saying well you're born a coward." And, and talk about a bleak philosophy to to, yeah. to say that you are born some way and you can't help but go through it. Here, if you're a coward, it's because you've chosen to be a coward. If yeah. you're a hero, it's because you've chosen to be a hero. But that heroism is always open to you.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and and so that that is stark in the sense that you are utterly responsible for everything you do. But it is it's not bleak. I think it's it's quite an optimistic philosophy in in its way.
0: Yeah. And and so Garcane in this play, the, he's a deserter who uh, is executed, who shot um, for desertion. Um, and so he um, has made that choice that has defined who he is, basically, uh, in his actions. And so uh, do you get a sense in this play, and this is a question that my students asked me, uh, when asked me last semester when I was uh, teaching this, that there is a chance that during the afterlife, there is a way to undo those mistakes and redefine oneself or do you get a sense that this is uh like concretized and that this is the uh the the what they've the the final answer to themselves
1: well sartre certainly says that your essence is available only after you die right so so you are possibility while you're still alive you can always do something but once you die that is kind of calcified and, and okay. you you are what you are. His his famous line in Being and Nothingness is, uh, "I am not what I am, and I am what I am not." That stops happening when you die. Now, you know he thinks that when you die, you just rot in the ground. So whether whether that that is true of our characters here in No Exit or not, I don't know. You'll remember the door opens. Um, Garcon, uh bangs on the door for uh, for however long, and then it opens, and and, and he doesn't leave.
0: Yeah that that's the scene that 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 prompts this this question
1: so i, I huh. there's two ways of looking at it right one is that they they can't choose one is that Gar- Garcin, uh has has he the door is open but he couldn't leave even if he wanted to and the other is that he has pushed himself so far he has he has made himself a person who would not leave he has chosen in some sense his cowardness Cowardice and his betrayal of his wife, which is the other thing that puts him there right he mm. uh, he brings all these women home and and sleeps with them at his house and his wife serves them breakfast in the morning it's really it 's yeah. really really brutal yeah. he 's an um,
0: awful person yes
1: yeah. they 're all awful people right that 's yeah. why they're in hell um, <laughs> so so the the sense is that he has made himself this this person who wouldn 't leave even if he could you know because because his cowardice is too important to him the 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 petty squabbling he gets in with Inez and, and Estelle is too important to him even though he doesn't recognize that is important because of course the the way you determine value in a search the universe is what you do not how you feel does it make I sense see.
0: um I- it does yeah no it does and I think that's an excellent answer um if that comes up again this semester uh because yeah that one with that open door scene does seem to open the possibility that there is uh, an exit if one wishes to take it. Um,
1: but but, the, but the, the, the fact that – the, 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 the sense in which there is no exit is the sense that that he would not possibly choose the exit. He has become the sort of person who would not leave.
0: Yeah. Uh, OK. And so his essence then is defined for him. Yes.
1: Right. And, and you know what I would compare this to, especially if I was teaching this at a Christian college, is um is the great divorce –
2: Mm. where the people mm.
1: from, I can't remember if it's hell or purgatory, take the bus ride up to heaven. And the, the implication is they could they could hop off the bus and stay in heaven and they choose not to.
2: Mm.
0: Um, and that's actually another thing uh, that some students wanted to look into this, is this a sort of purgatory instead of hell. And, and I guess that's another, like, because it doesn't look like what we picture hell looking like, they, they wonder if this is perhaps something else. And so um, I, I felt like that was a bit too... Easy of a <laughs> of a reading of this. I, I, you as know, as really... they
1: say on TV trips, everybody is Jesus in purgatory. Yeah, it's the, the kind of easiest <laughs> reading of everything.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I don't, I don't think it's purgatory because there's no purgation happening.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, there's just sort of like reliving uh, established patterns and weaknesses uh, For, with other people.
1: Right, but if you read Dante's Purgatory. You suffer, right? I mean, in, in Purgatorio, they all suffer, but they yeah. suffer—they they suffer to reverse the effects of the sins they've chosen. And there's—I don't see any reversal here. I don't see any sense that anything is going to happen other than the repetition of this same brutal argument over and over and over again.
0: Uh, and that's the the play ends. Like, let's get started then, or something. He says, right. uh, like, once they've all sort of realized what their eternity is going to be like, let's get on with it. Is how he says it. And so, a completely
1: yeah. non non teleological eternity uh, right uh, that's the difference between hell and purgatory in Dante's vision is, is purgatory is teleological there's motion you're going mm-hmm. toward a goal hell is just I, I mean the, the. I don't know if it's the first people but one of the first groups we meet in Dante's hell you, you meet them in this antechamber and I'm, I'm making hand motions as if anybody could see me um, <laughs> they, they just run around in a circle right and, and, and in some ways that's an emblem of everybody in hell because you get these same terrible punishments over and over and over again there's no possibility of progress and I think I think you get the same thing here in no exit yeah there's they're suffering and they're causing their own suffering and they're causing the suffering of others but there's no sense to me that, that they're going to relieve themselves of this suffering
0: and in fact one of the characters i forget whether it's Estelle or Inez uh tries to stab herself i think it's Estelle um uh and with a letter opener that, that's there and and <laughs> this there's nothing happens right cuz she is dead already and so there is no sort of like pain involved with this there's no sort of end in sight right and so yeah there is no uh uh, uh purgation but like as you say that's that, interesting
1: that paper knife is really the saddest part of the whole cuz why would they put it in there they don't have any they don't have any books to cut and, and <laughs> it's, the, it's just there to make them try to kill themselves with it and, and to realize they can't. In, in some ways, that's the most sadistic thing about this vision of hell.
0: The objects and lack thereof in this play are very interesting. And it makes, that's a, a parallel that I seem to remember from uh, Nausea is that sort of the objects of the world are his – like limitations and that sort of thing. Right. Um, and, and that's what he's sort of the limitations that he finds himself up against. Like he can't fly, as you were saying before. Um, and so like the fact that there aren't mirrors, the fact that there's a, a letter opener, but, but, or a, a book, you know, page ripper, um, except there are no books. Uh, they won't let him have a toothbrush. I, the things <laughs> that they, uh, and,
1: and the valet thinks that's very funny that everybody you, always adds, oh, there's your human dignity asking for a toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I told my students that I kind of see myself as the valet in this class. Actually, <laughs> I'm sort of like escorting you. Yeah, you've, you've got you that personality. Your... <laughs> I love that guy. Actually, um, you, uh, you wonder
1: but... if he was like a per- like this is his punishment, or maybe he he's a person. This is heaven for him, and he enjoys torturing these people. Or if he's a demon, who knows?
0: Doesn't he say his uncle manages the place <laughs> or something? <laughs> <laughs> and he gets a uh, he gets to stay with him when he's on vacation or something upstairs. My know. uncle manages um, the place. Yeah, it's a really uh, like fascinating like uh, vision of what hell looks like. But but back to the objects, I do feel like I mean the the design of the furniture seems so meaningful right and, and the this uh, second empire style they call it uh and and the fact that things are laid out in a particular way and they are unable to move anything that's in there everything's too heavy for them to lift and so the the objects as st- I, I I don't know whether they have symbolic meaning in and of themselves, other than they they are stand-ins for a world around them that they are unable to affect in any way.
1: Right, and and, and so this this kind of gets at Sartre's metaphysic, which um, he deals with in Being and Nothingness, which comes out the year before No Exit. He he essentially um, divides all being into two categories, um, and I won't say them in French. Um, Because, you know, my French is not, my pronunciation is pretty terrible. Abominable, as they say. Um, Being in itself, which is all of that which is what it is, right? All of that, you know, it's, it's essentially all... Uh, non animate non conscious being so the the world of nature animals probably he doesn 't really talk about animals uh inanimate objects the 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 paper he 's writing on the the table he 's sitting at you know Sartre his examples and his philosophy are always whatever he sees around him in the cafe um, and and then uh, being for itself which is which is that complicated conscious being self conscious being and and so you have this This division, and being in itself provides a rebuke to being for itself because it 's going to outlive it um, being being for itself is a blip on the radar uh, of this vast field of of being in itself to mix my metaphors terribly <laughs> um, and so it it's interesting that you would point to those objects because you 're right everything everything in this room is a rebuke to them. Um, and 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 i I think he must have had that division in mind, given how close closely this was released to uh, being in nothingness
0: the uh, for me the the kind of most powerful and most persistent motif in the play is the the idea of of vision. Uh, and and seeing. And so the the idea that you can't, they have no access to mirrors, even if they had them in their purse at the beginning, it's gone from their purse when they get in this room. Uh, And it's the thing they want most, it seems is is a mirror. And, and, uh, you know, the, the kind of obvious reading to me of that is that and maybe it's too obvious, (laughs) um, but the obvious reading to me is that the ability to look at oneself um, gives one the opportunity to define oneself in a way that helps, helps them not see the truth. Right. Uh, Yeah. The
1: mirror lies.
0: Yes. Or allows them to lie. To the, yeah, and so they have this kind of these kind of false uh, senses of the self that they have constructed through their choices, and so uh, lacking of that, the only kind of way that they can see themselves is through the eyes. In one case, literally, uh, uh, Estelle has to use Inez's eyes as a mirror and trying to see herself in the reflection of her eyes. Uh, well, either others. Estelle
1: or Inez even says, "I'll be your mirror."
0: Yes, yeah, um, and, and not in and the st-
1: cheerful velvet underground. <laughs> well,
0: if the Velvet Underground is cheerful in this play, we are we're onto something here. So um, but uh, uh, so, yes, I think that that the idea of not being able to sort of define oneself through sight and having that kind of uh, blindness imposed upon you and the reliance upon, I guess, what is the truth uh, about yourself? Reflected back at you through other people, I mean, this is where the line I think comes from hell is other people
1: sure, um, and, and actually the other the other thing worth noting here is, is they don't have any mirrors, they also don't have any eyelids. yes, so, so they they're forced to perpetually look. there's no break, not even the the split second break you get when you blink, so, so they're forced to confront this eternally, head on forever. Eternally uh, yes. and forever mean the same thing. I understand.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and Garcin actually notes that right at the beginning with uh, the valet, he notes that you don't have eyelids, and, and so like he he talks about these what are four thousand little uh, blinks, little rests uh, a, a, a minute or something, and uh, and how like how wonderful that is to be able to sort of just shield yourself from from the truth. Um,
1: and we're back to we're back to that that starkness of existentialism because the idea is, you know, we're all supposed to look at ourselves and others with that degree of intensity um, that that, that a, a reliable ethics requires us to not blink.
0: Yeah. Another thing that occurs to me uh, that's sort of related is their the vision they have of the the world of the living, uh, it, it sort of comes and goes always at inconvenient times uh, it, it seems to me that when they want to see what's going on in the space of their former life uh, then un- that, that vision then fades but when they seem to be on to some truth about themselves or, or some progress they get interrupted by this vision of what's going on where they used to live and, and it sort of de- un- derails their train of thought. Uh, I was wondering if you had anything to link that to uh, uh, in terms of Sartre's broader ideas.
1: Well, actually, I think I think what's happening is, th- I mean, when they see, I don't know, but but in terms of what allows them to see, is it, it seems to be people talking about them. Mm. So, so the idea is, once everybody who knew them is dead or has forgotten them nobody they're not gonna there, there's gonna be no more glimpses into this world and but it, it's just another form of seeing through the eyes of the other right because here they're only able to access this this world when somebody is talking about them and you know spoiler alert they're not saying nice things yeah <laughs> for the most part <laughs> you know, um, they, yeah. and i think garcin sees his wife commits suicide is that correct
0: Oh, there's something. I yeah, there's yeah, something it, like it's that. It's
1: pretty veiled. It's hard to see exactly what's happening because he he's just describing it and he's horrified. But I, I believe he sees that. Um, so yeah, they're not seeing anything pleasant, and they're they're not seeing anything that's going to offer them any comfort. Um, all they're all they're seeing is people talking crap about them.
0: In his office particularly, he's very upset by the things they're saying about him in his old uh, newspaper office or whatever it was. And, and so, yeah, uh, yeah, his, his – the, the, I mean the vainness, the vanity of of his life basically is carrying – he's carrying it with him in, in the afterlife there.
1: And, and to some – this is another parallel I think with L'Etranger because um, – which I was teaching the same time you were teaching No Exit. Um, And by the way, I say L'Etranger not just to be pretentious, but because the the, the title suggests more than the stranger. It also suggests the foreigner, the outsider. So I I always say the the French word, which contains multitudes in English. So anyway, in L'Etranger, you know, Merceau does what he does. I don't want to spoil anything. And he ends up in jail and he he says he didn't get used to it until he started thinking of himself as a criminal too, because we all have Mm -hmm. this kind of vanity whereby we think we aren't what we did. You know, we, we think, we think there's some reserve of self that is, that is free from the actions we commit. And, And what, what the existentialists tell us is, well, no, no such self exists. The only self you have is the self that has performed these actions, and there's always more actions to perform, at least until you're in these guys' positions. But to, to pretend that to, to pretend that you are not the things you've done is bad faith. Although also to pretend you are entirely the things you've done is bad faith too. Although because these folks are dead, um, that's not so much of an issue in this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and for a student, I mean, so if you're a good student, why didn't you do the reading? I mean, if a good student, right, (laughs) right,
1: you get this over and over again, right? Oh, I don't, this, I don't, I don't do this sort of thing. I'm so sorry. Well, yes, you do do this sort of thing, but you also, you also get the students who are like, oh, I'm just a bad student. Well, you're a bad student because you have chosen to prioritize things other than your schoolwork, and maybe that's a good choice, but you, you don't get to just blame it on your nature. Yeah. So yes. I, I get – I go full Sartre of when, when people uh, – <laughs> when, when, when students say things like that to me. And I, I remember working on the n- newspaper when I was in college before I knew anything about existentialism, and the students would come to me and say, well, I didn't complete this. I didn't have time. And I would always say, well, yeah, you had 24 hours in the day just like everybody else. You just chose to do something else. You know, you, you, you decided this wasn't as important as XYZ.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Um I didn't have a lot of friends in college, <laughs> I should say.
0: <laughs> well, you make up for it now. You're you're a well-loved person. Oh yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um I, I one thing, so this reminds me of something I wanted to ask you about. Uh I I try to connect the existentialism of display of sartre in general with that of Camus. Uh, i also i teach uh, the guest in the, this course sequence actually it's in our, our the volume that I, I use as a textbook and uh, by, uh, by the
1: way just a, just a side note that that's another one that it's better to say in french lot because it means the title means both the guest and the host
0: yes i know uh, there's so yeah, there's obviously a limitation in language there that you can't overcome
1: i'm, I'm sorry i get i get super pretentious about this stuff uh,
0: no rightfully so you're right there there are layers of i mean that that I I brought that up in teaching it, um, but, you know, the translation we have, says the guest. Um, but the uh, – uh, and also with Kafka, I mean there's a certain kind of existentialism there. Uh, how do you sort of uh, compare them with each other?
1: Hmm, that's a pretty big question. Sartre uh, and Camus were friends until they weren't. Right. Right, and Cam- Camus always hated that label existentialism. Um, and And to him the the important thing seems to be this defiance of the world so his uh, his his prototypical ethical man is the rebel uh the The revolting man is the the French I believe instead of the rebel, but the revolting man means something different in in English than it does in french so So the idea is you 're faced with this universe that 's absurd. Um, have you read the myth of Sisyphus? uh yeah yeah so you 'll remember Sisyphus has to push this rock up a hill and it falls back down and he has to push it up again and and this is this is what human life is like it's it's it 's endless labor and then you're you 're destined to die and be forgotten and so what is the value of it why Why should you continue living why shouldn 't you just kill yourself and the answer he comes up with is you have to imagine Sisyphus happy
0: yeah
1: um but what makes him happy is kind of giving the bird to the gods as he's pushing this rock up the hill. Yeah. I don't get that big of a sense of defiance in Sartre. The the, the ethical system he has is uh I was going to say blither, but that is probably going too far because I don't I don't know how much about Sartre is really blithe because it is a very exacting ethic, but it 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 lacks that element of revolt, I think. Um, in large part that's, and, what, and that's with, what i would say is the difference
0: and with kafka i feel like he's more of the comedian about the whole thing like he, he's uh if you read uh the end of the hunger artist for example this moment of his death uh you're expect, and he has these last words to say to the the, the circus master there and, and and then he leans in you're waiting for this profound words of wisdom that being at the doorstep of death brings. And he says, well, I would have eaten if there's been anything I would have liked. And so, I mean, it's very... It's Jewish, right? It's very
1: gallows humor.
0: It's, it's gallows humor, right? Um, and there's a great line in a Tom Waits' song, uh, the only way down from the gallows is to swing, right? And so that, that, that to me is the most Kafkaesque uh, line, I think. that Oh, I, I said Kafkaesque. Dang it. I, I, Sorry. I promised myself I would never say that word who, again. Who but, is uh,
1: Kafkaesque? I don't know him.
0: <laughs> exactly um but yeah so there is there seems to me kind of a almost like a a cruel comedian in kafka that i don't see the humor in these plays as much uh in, in these works as much oh
1: i don't know there's some pretty funny stuff in no exit i i think you're right about l'etranger there's there's nothing particularly funny in that yeah. um that i can remember l'etranger is kind of a sexy book though at least the first half of it yeah um
0: and it's a great cure song that's based on it too. Listen to the to, that
1: to the degree there's such a thing as a great cure song. Oh, yes. oh, oh! All
0: right, next week's topic. There we go. So.
1: <laughs> Speaking of Kafka, um, <laughs> so John Barth says, you, you know, John Barth, the early yeah. the early American postmodern novelist. Oh yeah. he, he says that he conceives of himself as a nihilist, but as a smiling nihilist.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I wondered, I wonder to what degree that label fits Kafka as well. That that. That life is meaningless. There's no meaning. There's not even any meaning to be made from it, which is what Sartre and Camus say, right? You have to, you have to make meaning, defiantly or non-defiantly. However, you got to do it. The, what you've just described as Kafka, um, as, as Kafka's stance seems to me to be more. There's no meaning, so we may as well laugh about it. And, and in, in that sense, I wonder if he's better, better conceived as an early postmodernist than as an early existentialist.
0: Mm that's interesting um i the one thing about Kafka I feel like that uh, I, the the embrace of the of the margin uh, in his like, as this sort of ethical position upon which or from which to view like the absurdity of life I feel like that's the the uh, the meditation on existence uh, from that marginal position, I think, makes him. Uh, I, I think it's it's okay to use the term existential. Uh, for- well,
1: certainly Camus adopts him, right? So, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I don't think it's a controversial position at all. I, I can't, Camus takes him up and, and says, "Oh, yeah, th- this is the only person who's ever really dealt with the absurd in an appropriate way." Um, and, and you know, labels are always. Abstractions, right? yes. and one, one thing the existentialists teach us: the reason they're all writing novels is because abstraction is is falsification in some sense. Mm. You have to you have to put this in actual, concrete, livable terms.
0: Yeah, and that's the starkness that you you point out in this philosophy with with Sartre. I think that it's it's not really abstract, is it? It's, <laughs> it's very it's very clear uh, in, in that way. Right, which uh, is, I mean
1: like I said you could you could read no exit and go backwards and come up with existentialism as a humanism and parts of being and nothingness. but I don't think that makes it a bad play. I think it makes it do exactly what Sartre is trying to make it do, and there's enough wiggle room in the play to to come up with um with other interpretations of it to to have some to have some interpretive space so i I, I think it's successful as an artistic object as well as a philosophical one
0: oh absolutely it's a it's a um a really powerful play and like well written quote unquote uh that i think makes it a work of art it's estimable um one last existential question can i can i squeeze one more out of you
1: you can do whatever you want danny <laughs> but you're responsible uh, for this question once you ask it
0: <laughs> well you're presenting
1: uh
0: sartre here as a, a much more and i think i've adopted your pronunciation well enough, uh, I think uh, you're presenting it as a much more hopeful kind of existentialism than I came into it thinking of it as. And so uh, I've always sort of pushed this existentialism up against, uh, say, Martin Buber's like the I-it-I-thou kind of distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that I see much of a difference basically between what you're saying. And of course I thou is the idea of you see another person as part of yourself. And and then as, a as another subject, rather than as, a, as an object as another subject. And so as you can exist as a community. And so there's like an ethical way to approach other people. Right. And I'm
1: glad you brought that up, Danny. Cause, cause that is actually a, an area in which Sartre is pretty, pretty bleak. Um, he, he talks. He's he's one of the first people to talk about the gaze, which gets picked up by a lot of um, g a z e gets picked up by a lot of postmodern theorists, right? Foucault talks about the the gaze. Laura Mulvey has a very famous essay about the male gaze in sure. cinema. and cinema. And the idea is this competing consciousness fixes me to the wall like a like a butterfly pinned to a book. I think that's a that's an Eliotian image, but I, I think Sartre would approve of it. Uh-huh. Um, th- this notion that it is very hard for me to coexist with others because they see me and they their choosing um, creates a life for me that I don't choose for myself. And so the gaze of the other uh, becomes a very unpleasant thing for Sartre. And I, I think that is what he's getting at with Hell is Other People, which is mm-hmm. not quite as bleak as some people make it out to be, that, that sentence. But it, it is bleak nevertheless um one of the things gabriel marcel who is a catholic existentialist um he would probably deny the label uh he did cre- he did he's also the coiner of the term existentialism um one of the issues he takes with sartre is just this there's no there's no room in sartre's philosophy says marcel for the the kind of um, um healthy Interaction between people that you're ascribing to Buber and, and Marcel's term for it is intersubjectivity. Mm. So um, yeah, I, I think you're right to contrast what Sartre is doing with what Buber is doing. The difference may not be quite as broad as some people make it out to be. I mean, Sartre says that to will your own freedom is to will the freedom of others, and I mean it's it's important to him that that. That we treat others appropriately, but on the other hand, you do get the sense reading being and nothingness that the other is a constant rebuke to me that the existence of other subjectivities endangers my subjectivity in some way yeah, and Buber, i mean Buber just rejects that utterly he says the the only way to have genuine community is to see everybody else as a as a subject of their own and 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 to approach them that way, not just people, right, God and trees and cats.
0: Right, right. And, and and that's, I think, ties in. I think uh, one thing I want to try to do this semester when I teach this is introduce that philosophy a bit before. So the objects in the room take on, I think, a different level of meaning uh, if you have that sort of other idea of what objects are. Uh, I think I'm going to try to, to contrast these ideas of Existentialism a bit uh, as we teach it. You really um, might
1: want to give them existentialism as a humanism. It's about fifteen pages, and it was delivered as a lecture at a nightclub, so it, ah. it's it's pretty readable.
0: <laughs> that sounds good actually. Um, I, going back, to what you said about the gaze, the the line that's used in this play, in translation at least, um, Inez says it. Uh, Estelle says to her, but she doesn't count. She's a woman. Um, Estelle just wants to sort of please men, right? And Inez is uh, you know is lesbian, and so she. And then it says, oh, I don't count. Is that what you think? But my poor little fallen nestling, you've been sheltering in my heart for ages, though you didn't realize it. Don't be afraid. I'll keep looking at you forever and ever without a flutter of my eyelids and you'll live in my gaze
1: <laughs> like a
0: moat in a sunbeam. Um, and so, yeah. We, like, we are a idea. long
1: way away from Boober, aren't we?
0: Yes, exactly. And so that that's uh, the idea. The, I, this, the idea of objectifying people, basically, um, it is really... Uh, what's um, at at stake there. And so I think this is,
1: this is why the gaze of the other is a rebuke to me because, because, um, because that makes me into an object, even though I conceive of myself as a subject, which Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really weird to think about because, because you, you encounter the world with yourself as the Cartesian point. You're the zero, zero. Mm -hmm. And it's weird to think that everybody else is also the zero, zero. So you can certainly understand where, where Sartre is coming from. And it's, it's, I think it's, important that both Buber and Marcel are religious existentialists. And so that concept of intersubjectivity almost has to come out yeah. of, out of a religious mindset.
0: Yeah. Which, uh, can I give a little anecdote, um, about this story? Oh, sure, and, yeah, uh, please. This isn't very academic, but, um, I, uh, years ago, I lived in New York city and I, I used to work for this church that had bought in the seventies when times square was a, a you know, a, a wasteland, they bought this old theater, and they used it as a ministry center when a different kind of prostitute still at the Times Square. Um, and uh, uh, I worked for this church, and, and, and it was still an active theater, though. And so we would have shows come in and out, and uh, uh, and someone wanted to put on a production of No Exit a, a, at the church. And it was this point of—and this is before I'd read it. Uh, I, had no, I, I hadn't even heard of it at this point, but it, it was such a, a point of, like— uh, like contention amongst the 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 church people, <laughs> the religious people at church, uh, uh, because of you know there's the, you know they have the lesbian, you have this idea of hell, this kind of unorthodox, this somewhat unorthodox, seemingly unorthodox idea of hell, and, and so they actually ended up not allowing the production to to be housed there. And and now that I like I've wrestled with this play a bit in the subsequent years, like I feel like that was such a lost. Opportunity for for like fascinating ministry, uh, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and I, I feel like the the problems that this raises for Christianity and, and Christian orthodoxy, let's say, uh, I think are like minuscule in. Uh, in comparison to the the possibilities that it raises for for Christian orthodoxy uh, because of this idea uh, of this kind of negative idea of how people interact with one another I just I, that story i 've always remembered that in um, particular as i 've come to actually read and, and teach this play and and I feel like um, this is one of those plays that Christians should read because it it challenges them in productive ways.
1: Right. And it leaves some sort of space open. I mean, not in the play itself, but in, in the the kind of ethics and metaphysics of the play, there's some space to talk about grace and, and how, how this play would look different in a universe where grace was possible, which it's not in Sartre's universe.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Performing it for the prostitutes makes me think of the stories about, Performing "Waiting for Godot" in prison, you know the the play. Beckett's <laughs> "Waiting for Godot" was a big flop when it first came out, and and one of the first audiences that embraced it was was, was prisoners. Oh, which I mean makes total sense if you've seen "Waiting for Godot."
0: Yes, that's uh, that's really interesting. Actually, I can I can totally see that.
1: I mean, I hate Godot, so I I, uh, I I find that interesting more than affirming. I don't like that play at all.
0: The play I read with them. Um, in this core sequence is Endgame, and, uh, and and that actually works quite well. I haven't even talked about that as a – I think in many ways uh, that's a, a great companion piece to uh, to this play.
1: You're, you're to, kind of just doing an existentialism class, Danny. Uh,
0: well, as it turns out, I mean there's quite a bit of that in there, but uh, it's more about uh, – oh, I don't know. I just want to get them – the purpose of the conversation I've built between Kafka and, and then, you know, modernism, postmodernism and, and and this sort of thing is to get them aware of their cultural surrounding. I, I, they don't understand. They just consume art that, that they enjoy. Right. And they don't think about the the mechanics of it. And, and, like that's sort of the natural de- default position of any uh, person, any young person. And so what I want them to understand is the stuff that you like has its roots in this sort of thought and and studying this thought makes you a better consumer of of art for one thing, but a more sort of ethical consumer of art, most importantly. And, And so this these existentialist uh, works that really do kind of dominate the the cultural thought of the of the century um, are very important to wrestle with uh, as a just an ethical human being, and, and so that that I keep coming back to, that, and I feel a bit preachy at times uh, when I when I do this, but it, it does seem to me the the value I can offer a Christian college in a literature class.
1: Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end. Uh, if you if if you feel like we have misrepresented uh no exit by all means send us an email at the christian humanist at com. we also have a facebook page we have a website christianhumanist.org where you will find show notes for this episode and i was going to say all the others but i think there's a couple i missed so let's say many others <laughs> danny you're leading next week what are we talking about
0: We are going to talk about the Kenneth Burke essay, Terministic Screens, which is on its surface a rhetorical essay, but it has a lot of uh, implication for sort of another way of ethically navigating the world of images and words.
1: Sounds good. I don't know that essay, but I'm sure I'll know it by next week. This has been a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philip time for Danny Anderson, for the absent Nathan Gilmore, and the even more absent David Grubbs. This is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. So the same
2: time.